The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Hey Jay, when was the last time you heard something positive about climate change in mainstream media? Tom, the next time I hear something positive about climate change in mainstream media will be the first time I've ever heard anything. <laughs> well, how about the fact that global warming is generally good for humanity and nature? Well, clearly mainstream media will never tell us that, even though we know for sure it's true. <laughs> Do mainstream media ever explain that rising carbon dioxide levels are a boon for plants and so help us feed our growing population? Of course not, Tom. Yet both statements that you just made are absolutely true. Global warming is good for humanity and nature, and rising carbon dioxide levels are indeed a boon for plants and do help us feed our growing population. Then why on earth are the press not telling us this, Jay? Well, Tom, the basic axiom for most media is very simple. If it bleeds, it leads. Some time ago, I called a TV and radio station to ask them why they fill their broadcasts with murder and car crashes, even going to great lengths to find tragedies thousands of miles away if nothing happened bad locally. I was told that if their listeners or viewers do not hear or see local bad news or major national bad news on their station, they'll complain if they heard or saw it somewhere else. The stations do not want to lose readers, listeners, or viewers, so Naturally, they give their audience what they want to hear and see. And I'm afraid it's a human condition to uh, like hearing bad things. That's why they watch uh, shows about murder and, and all kinds of terrible explosions and things like that. It's not my cup of tea, but it seems to be true of most of the population. Yeah, I find the same. And, you know, it, it, when it comes to climate change, the same thing is happening. It's interesting, there's a 2013 study by James Painter, who's the head of the, of the Journalism Fellowship Program at Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. He found that 80% of media coverage of climate change portrayed the subject in terms of disaster. And they also found that 90% of coverage of the reports of the UN IPCC were also couched in sort of apocalyptic terms. <laughs> and some writers have even announced that climate change will happen so fast that the earth will be uninhabitable in 10 years. Well, that is crazy, but it's not really surprising. Uh, it's really about politics and money and fear sells. The best way to control people 
is to scare them. A climate activist may unwillingly be doing us all a great favor with their huge exaggerations. In 2013, a paper was published in the Journal of Psychological Science called The Moral Roots of Environmental Attitudes. It showed that test subjects who were exposed to doomsday messages about global warming actually became more skeptical about the science, uh, backing the climate scare than those who are not. There's an article titled Dire Messages About Global Warming Can Backfire, study shows. That we will link uh, to the description of this program that explains this more fully. So that would seem to suggest that we should welcome truly loony statements about climate change, as then most of the public will just simply dismiss it, I guess. Well, I think we're moving in that direction. And indeed, uh, my wife comes to me with some crazy headline or something she read just about every day, uh, and I cheer. Uh, I hope that when President Joe Biden convenes his Earth Day Leaders Summit on Climate Change on the 22nd of April, he encourages world leaders to make the scariest pronouncements possible. Huh, you know, one of the statements that maybe I hope they can use, we could even encourage Biden to copy it on Earth Day. It's from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You remember the new novice uh, representative from Democrat from New York. And she said the following, and I think you'll get a kick out of it. She said, millennials and Gen X and all those folks that come after us are looking up and we're like, quote, the world will end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. And your biggest issue is how we're going to pay for it. <laughs> would you like to see Biden saying that sort of thing on Earth Day, Jay? Yes, that would be a great place to start. Given the dire financial straits of so many Americans right now, they will be very concerned indeed about how we're going to pay for the extreme climate change plans of the Democrats. Uh, yeah, I think uh, AOC does us a favor just about every time she opens her mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's quite a, almost like a comedian on Saturday Night Live or something, but she's serious. You know, Jay, it strikes me that another bonus of the outrageous forecast is that it gives people like you and me fantastic ammunition to use in the future when their forecasts don't come true. Well, that's absolutely correct. But even beyond that, I'm seeing that in over 500 election districts in our country, there'll be conservatives running for office against entrenched Democrats. And all these crazy statements will make up, I hope, the platform of these people running against the, uh, the liberals who are purveying these absurd lies. Huh. To help listeners better understand the immaturity of the science on which the climate scare is based, I'd like Jay to read to you 10 forecasts that were projected to come to pass in 2020. And then I'd like to hear your response. Did these things really happen, okay? I'm game, fire away. Okay, great. Well, here's the first one. In 1978, the Vermont Sun quoted multiple scientists predicting that in 2020, the Earth's CO2 concentration, carbon dioxide, would double from its then current level of 330 parts per million. So what actually happened, Jay? Well, CO2 certainly did not double. It actually increased by only about 27% today to 420 parts per million, all of which has been a good thing because carbon dioxide is plant food, Tom. 
Well, how about this one? This is good. In 1986, <clears throat> your favorite U.S. Environmental Protection Agency <laughs> predicted a two-foot sea level rise for Florida in 2020. Did that happen? Well, that's actually very funny. It's risen an inch, a rate which has been experienced for 800 years. An additional apparent rise of three inches has been the result of land subsidence. But we have very good records of sea level going back 800 years, and it's been rising about a constant seven inches per century, although it varies all the way around the world. And there are even some areas, Sitka, Alaska, the uh, ocean level has been falling. You know, Jay, it sort of strikes me that average global sea level doesn't really matter because, you know, people live in specific regions where what's happening there, as you say, can be partly due to land subsistence. Um, but I mean, what really matters is subsidence, I guess is the word. <laughs> but what really matters is what's happening where you live. I mean, who cares what a global sea level is doing on average? Well, this is absolutely true. And I was asked to address the City Council of New York. Uh, in opposition to their plan to build a seawall around Manhattan because of rising sea levels. And uh, the crux of my paper I delivered to them a little over a year ago was showing them the variation in sea level in 10 cities around the world. And as you just said, they vary greatly, but none really uh, exceed significantly seven inches per century. And as I said, in some of them, actually, uh, sea level is declining. Ah, wow. So here's the next one. In 1987, a former NASA scientist was quoted in nearly all U.S. newspapers that by 2020, the world's temperature would increase by 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit. So did that happen? Well, it was a crazy prediction, not likely to happen. The actual increase was less than a single degree Fahrenheit. And it's sad that I think NASA makes predictions like this in order to enhance the chance of increasing their budget. Yeah, it's too bad. Because, of course, NASA has actually kind of diverged in that way from their core mission of space exploration. I mean, surely that's what they should be focusing on, not boosting a climate scare. Well, that's absolutely true. And it is sad. And we know, you know, really many astronauts that I've met over the years uh, I've become friendly with Walter uh, Cunningham, who flew on Apollo 7. And I had urged the man who actually was in charge of building the, state, the space station, uh, Larry Bell, he got involved in interest in climate uh, change. And uh, I urged him to write a book, which he did, which is called uh, Climate of Corruption. And Walter Cunningham wrote a blurb on the back of the book that I think is worth reading to the audience. Those of us fortunate enough to have traveled in space bet our lives on the competence, dedication, and integrity of the science and technology professionals who made our mission possible. From space, the Earth does appear fragile, but on returning to terra firma, we are reminded of how well our home planet has survived eons of extreme heating and cooling. In the last 20 years, I have watched the high standards of science being violated by a few influential climate scientists, including some at NASA, while special interest opportunists have dangerously abused our public trust. Today's real man-made crisis is the attempt to scare the public into thinking current temperatures are unusual 
that humans are responsible for it and that we can control the temperature of the earth. Those were the words of Walter Cunningham who flew on Apollo 7 and has been continuously now interested in the man-caused climate change fraud. Yeah, and I understand that there's other astronauts too that think that the climate scare is a fraud. I heard something called the Climate Right Stuff, which are astronauts and engineers who worked on the Apollo program. That's correct. And I've been fortunate enough to become a part of that group. And they, they battle the incumbent people at uh, NASA trying to constantly overcome their falsehoods with, uh, with the truth. And they were all were, were key. Uh, one of them who just passed away, Hal Dorian, actually wrote the program that landed Armstrong uh, on the moon. In fact, uh, we've become very good friends and he taught me the program he wrote. But then I kid him because in the last minute, Armstrong had to uh, take over manually because where he was being landed was a bit rocky. Took over in a minute and landed safely. Yeah, exactly. And I, Harrison Schmidt, also from Apollo 17, the first and only scientist to walk on the moon so far. I've met him a number of times. I had the pleasure of introducing him at one of Heartland's conferences. And of course, he thinks the climate scare is baloney, doesn't he? He sure does. And, and he, he has a background in geology, PhD, I think served in the, uh, in the Congress for a while. And I, I believe he may be the last man to have walked on the moon and he has dedicated himself in the last decade to trying to overcome the man-caused climate change fraud. Yeah, it's amazing eh, that media will ignore such extremely famous and, and well-educated people. It's crazy. So we're up to zero for three so far on the forecast. So here's the fourth. In March 2000, at Britain's Hadley Center for Climate Prediction and Research, scientist David Parker told uh, an English newspaper, The Independent, that British children would soon experience snow only virtually on the internet. <laughs> Did that happen? <laughs> well, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday. And of course, England has not been short of normal snow, Tom, although I'm sure many Brits, which it was, they have made energy so expensive in their dangerous crusade to stop global warming that many pensioners and people on fixed incomes have to choose between eating more and heating more. Yeah, that's crazy. So zero for four. Well, in 2000, it was reported in a Kiribati newspaper, and Kiribati, by the way, is in the center of the Pacific Ocean, that a study by Greenpeace indicated that global warming will ruin Pacific Island nation economies by 2020, with Tuvalu considered most critical. So what really happened, Jay? Well, first of all, the government of Tuvalu uh, actually bought into that for a while, hoping they'd get tremendous uh, financial aid because they were going to be flooded. They uh, didn't get the aid and they did not flood. And in fact, their 2019 budget report stated that Tuvalu had enjoyed an unprecedented six consecutive years of economic growth. So Greenpeace struck out big time there. And uh, of course, the sea level didn't flood anybody in Tuvalu either. <laughs> so what about this one? A secret Pentagon report in 2004 reported to President Bush that climate change caused resource shortages may cause a global war by 2020. It's said that shortages of water and energy will become increasingly harder to overcome, plunging the planet into war as it, as it is carrying a higher population than it can sustain. 
Well, I was aware of that study and actually was able to wheedle my way into the Pentagon to see the Undersecretary of the Army uh, trying to get them to change that report and, and get away again from trying to get more budget money to battle bad things that would happen to them with climate change. And very unfortunate that uh, we were not, a, not successful and they actually wrote a report for the then president uh, explaining all the things they would do to combat potential disaster from climate change to the military. And I guess it, obviously we're not in global war, that's for sure. Now, in 2008, Al Gore and most of his allies predicted that the snow on Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa would have disappeared. Is at least that true, Jay? No, and it was, I consider that prediction on Mount Kilimanjaro to be second to their one that polar bears would all disappear and, and drown and, and, and so on. There has been virtually no change uh, on, of snow on Mount Kilimanjaro. And it, it's something uh, I have many friends actually that have journeyed up there. And I have firsthand uh, knowledge of the fact that it's still snow capped. Huh. So forecast number eight. In 2009, it was predicted that China would decrease their CO2 emissions by 40 to 45%, and India would decrease by 20 to 25%. Did that happen? Well, if you believe that, just common sense, if you believe that, I think I have a, a bridge between Manhattan and Brooklyn I would like to uh, sell you. Or, of course, that's how the Indians sold Manhattan Island. It's a joke. They have obviously increased their emissions for the past 11 years. They have not declined a single percent, not just not 40 to 45 percent for China and 20 to 25 for India. They have increased their emissions nonstop all the intervening years. Ah, geez. Well, here's number nine. In 2009, the Los Angeles Times reported from a number of government documents that it was expected that all glaciers in Glacial National Park would be gone by 2020. The park officials even posted signs warning visitors that the end of glaciers in the park was near. Well, I have firsthand experience in that too, Tom, because in that very year, I took a cruise up through Glacier National Park and uh, we had a naturalist come aboard the ship and say those uh, you know, very things. And one of the interesting things she said was, while most of the glaciers are melting, some of them are increasing and we don't understand why. I never could find her on the ship. Had I done so, I might have wrung her neck trying to <laughs> teach her a little bit about glaciation. But uh, not only have the, the glaciers not gone away, what has gone away are the signs that were posted for tourists saying, you may not be able to see these glaciers anymore because they're all going to be gone. Finally, let's see if at least they got number 10 right. You know, Jake, the climate alarmists are batting straight zeros so far. <laughs> uh, absolutely uh, true. And they will continue to bat zero because there's really nothing bad connected to the changing climate as far as uh, our population on the earth. So whatever predictions they come up with this year for 2030 or 2025, 
you can count on them being wrong. They'll all be based on scaring the public. And it's all about power and money. You control people with fear. Yeah, exactly. So here's number 10, the last one. USA Today reported in 2013 that the Arctic should be free of ice in the summer by 2020. As our last one, did that one at least happen? Well, we have some really interesting numbers on that prediction because uh, they said the ice would be gone. They were off by exactly 3.9 million square kilometers of ice that is uh, still there. So that one's kind of funny because it's so easy to measure it from uh, satellites. And uh, happily, they, they make predictions uh, that are measurable in, in real time. Most predictions they make are 20 years away and we forget what they were 20 years later. But these 10 that you've read off are thanks to uh, Steve Malloy at Junk Science that keeps uh, track of this stuff. And he sent me the list and uh, we put it in an article we wrote. And now we have an opportunity to explain them all to our listeners. Huh, yeah, exactly. Steve Malloy's website is junkscience.com. And it's actually a very informative site. Well, so they're way off base on number 10 as well. And, you know, that kind of reminds me, you're a baseball player, right? I am. I uh, believe it or not, age 84, I still uh, am a catcher for a men's hardball team. Now, I can't reach second base on the fly. Happily, uh, in our league, it's generally an over 40 league. There's no stealing. So all I have to do is get the ball back to the pitcher. And that's hard enough. Yeah. Is it hard on your knees, all that bending? No, I've been working at it. I practice and do so many deep knee bends and practice hitting. I got a batting cage in the in my basement. No, I just keep in shape to play baseball. One of the great loves of my life. I'm not too happy with the uh, Major League Baseball anymore because of uh, moving the All-Star game from Georgia to Colorado, which actually has the very same voting rules. So uh, I may not be watching too many Major League games, but Every opportunity I have to play in a tournament for uh, senior men over 40, I'll be there. Wow. So would you say then that the environmentalists have batted a no hitter getting zero for 10? Is that the correct term? That's the the, the term is definitely a no hitter. And, And they will keep batting a no hitter because they'll never say anything positive. They will continue trying to scare people. And as we said at the beginning of the show, I think the scarier the predictions the more followers they're losing. I really don't think anywhere near half the country is too concerned about man-caused global warming. It would seem so if you are a reader of the newspapers or the social media, because that's all you read. But I think sensible people with common sense are no longer buying it. Uh, And and I think this is going to work to uh, our advantage of taking back the government. The way I look at it is Mr. Biden and his people have only 18 months left till the next uh, election cycle. And I think all of this is going to work against them. Well, you know, none of the forecasts that we read out came true. What about the poor polar bears? You brought that up briefly. What's happening in that case? Well, that's really been one of the most interesting icons that they chose trying to make people think they're starving or they're drowning. 1960 really led off the whole scare of, of global warming and in 1960, we had fairly good records up in the uh, Arctic area, North America. There were about five to 6,000 polar bears left. We now have extremely good records of the existing population of polar bears. 
and there are somewhere upwards of 25,000. And there are about 14 different families of polar bears throughout the Arctic. And the ones that are experiencing the warmest weather actually are growing their population. And those that are experiencing the cooler weather are declining. I mean, really, they're not much different than people. They, they like a little more warmth. So uh, it's an interesting icon. They haven't given up on it, but uh, it's, it's actually quite a joke because they are thriving. So it's actually, in a way, kind of appropriate that a hoax movement would have a, a hoax extinction as their icon, you know, polar bear, not being threatened with extinction maybe is actually the right icon to have for a movement that's bogus in the first place. I would agree with that. There's, there are enough articles that do appear in the newspaper that just report the news about polar bears that I think more and more people are uh, no longer taking the extinction of polar bears seriously. Yeah. You know, I interviewed a lady by the name of Dr. Susan Crockford from Victoria, B.C. in my podcast, Exploratory Journeys. And people can see that if they go to the webpage icsc-canada.com, icsc-canada.com, and click on resources. And she said that, in fact, it's the very thick ice and the very cold conditions, just like you were saying, that are indeed the greatest threat because they can't get, they can't get their food because the seals can't break through the ice. In our second part of our show, and we're going to break now, but we're going to bring up the book that you wrote, Comparing Environmental Forecasts with Reality on Far Broader Topics. So could you talk to us about that after the break, Jay? I look forward to doing that, Tom. Okay, good. Well, stay tuned. We'll be back right after the break. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called the Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service Sacrifice betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. 
Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Well, welcome back to the show. Just before the break, I talked about the fact that Dr. Jay Lear, my co-host actually on right now, that Jay, you wrote a book comparing environmental forecasts with reality. Can you tell us a bit more about your book? It started in 1988 when I, you know, realized work I was doing with water supply, with population, with uh, agriculture production was being distorted and, and all kinds of falsehoods were being spread. And I had run into a number of scientists that specialized in other environmental areas. And I had a feeling that they were probably subject to the, the same distortion. No matter what you were working on, the media and other liberal scientists would try to make a crisis out of it. And I spent uh, actually three years contacting, I think, a total of 56 or 57 scientists around the world uh, who worked in about 28 different areas. And I said, is this true in your field of science? One and all said, absolutely, they suffer critical distortion all on the negative side of their work. And so I asked him, I said, you know, I'd like to put together a book of articles uh, on these different subjects. If you would be willing to write me an article explaining your problem in your field. Nobody turned me down. It took me three years to put it together. And in 1991, the book was published, Rational Readings on Environmental Concerns. And there was an interesting thing that happened the original publisher of the book, at the last minute, I mean, literally, they were going to press, and uh, they wanted to change the title. They said, you know, rational readings infers that the opinions on these things were not rational. I said, yes, that's absolutely true. And the publisher, evidently having liberal leanings, decided they didn't want to publish it. Well, I polled all 56 of my contributors very quickly They all said, no, do not change the title. That's really critical. And uh, I told the publisher, okay, don't publish it. I'll find another publisher. Well, others knew about this book. And within 24 hours of everybody agreeing not to change the title, the book was picked up by the Nostrand Reinhold that then was purchased by uh, John Wiley and Sons and became a, a very, very popular book. And the interesting thing is it was published exactly at the same time that Al Gore's uh, Inconvenient Truth was published. And a number of publications reviewed them side by side, which uh, really gave us a a big thrill. Oh, yeah. And so what's the name of it again? Rational Readings on Environmental Concerns. And while it was published in 1991, I have read the book through cover to cover and nothing in it is out of date. Uh, I mean, more information has been added to make our case that attitudes on these topics uh, were irrational 
uh, and nothing in it is, is wrong or, or has gone out of date. So I'm very proud of that. Yeah. So you can see why some scientists are reluctant to speak to the media at all, because their work can be so totally distorted. I mean, they don't want to see that for sure. Just shifting gears here a bit, Earth Day is coming up as usual on Thursday, April 22nd, and climate change is a big part of it again this year. So I think I should explain that Earth Day didn't actually start out this way in 1970. It's, it's interesting. That was the first year of Earth Day, and it was formed on generally pretty good ideas. In the 1960s, Senator Nelson, from uh, he was the governor of Wisconsin previously, uh, he decided to actually start something called an environmental teach-in in 1970. And of course, in those days, it was not focused on climate change. But these teach-ins were very, very successful. And over the years, it eventually attracted millions of people. But the trouble is that it's actually being hijacked by the climate change movement. So at the very beginning of the video, you see, for example, on the very first video on the YouTube channel for this year's Earth Day, they talk about this incredible catastrophe that's coming, you know, this climate change thing. And, you know, Jay, it strikes me that there are legitimate environmental concerns. I mean, back in the 70s, a car put out a good 10 times more pollution than it does today. And those things were pretty well cleaned up. But don't you think that having climate change as their main focus, doesn't that actually kind of contaminate the movement? There isn't any question about it. And that's another issue that I have firsthand knowledge of. I live in uh, central Ohio and the whole kickoff of Earth Day uh, occurred in June. As I recall, it might be June 21st, 1968, when the Cuyahoga River that runs past Cleveland actually caught fire. The river was so filthy and full of oil that a railroad car going over a, a trestle over the river, a spark came off the wheel of the railroad car and lit the Cuyahoga River on fire. And of course, it made newspapers across the country and highlighted how much pollution we had in our in our surface water. And that was really where it all began. And it had uh, it was a good idea. And in fact, from that point on, I testified before three dozen committees of Congress talking about environmental pollution problems and actually playing a major role in the formation of uh, US EPA ultimately in 71 when Nixon signed it. But you're exactly right. The climate change people have hijacked. I mean, there are significant environmental problems that Earth Day could focus on. But as long as they ally themselves with the ridiculous climate scare, many people will just write them off as radical crazies, which they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so it really sounds like environmental activists who are true environmentalists who really do care about air, land and water pollution and preserving species at risk, they should kick these climate campaigners out of the movement, don't you think? They should, but not likely. They really are in, in a total control. I, as I said a moment ago, I helped form EPA. And for 10 years, uh, EPA did great work. I played a role in writing seven major pieces of environmental regulations to protect our surface waters, our groundwaters, our, our mining, our agriculture, our waste disposal. And I'm very proud of it. Unfortunately, just as the climate people have hijacked Earth Day, the radical environmentalists, the, the liberals have hijacked EPA. 
they have really passed no useful legislation, rules and regulations since 1980. A very sad state of affairs. If there's ever an agency in the government that is the deep state working against whatever administration is in control, certainly the, uh, the last Trump administration, it is EPA. I've, I've worked very hard in recent years kind of to do penance for helping to form EPA to see if we could get rid of all the deep state liberals that run it. I have sadly not had any success. Yeah. So is this part of the reason Trump wasn't able to get out of the framework convention and to have the endangerment finding uh, re-examined? Is, is it the deep state and the EPA that were blocking it? It's exactly that. And I had the honor of being a major advisor to Mr. Trump in the first two years of his presidency. I, I kind of educated him on uh, climate change. In his debates before the election, he had quoted papers that I wrote. So I knew he was uh, clearly leaning in my direction. And as soon as he was elected, his uh, office called me and asked me if I could create a PowerPoint presentation to to, to really uh, uh, make him understand the, the science uh, base of it all. And I did that. They only gave me a couple of weeks. They asked me, they asked me what days uh, I could come in New York. And this is really December before the inauguration to present my PowerPoint to him. And I, I gave him the days I was free to do that. I was very excited. I had a lot of friends, uh, help from my friends, especially Joe Bast at the uh, Heartland Institute in putting together the PowerPoint. And uh, about five days after I uh, emailed it to him, to them, his, uh, his helpers, they called me and said they had good news and bad news. And I said, well, what's that? The good news is your PowerPoint was absolutely just fabulous, everything he wanted. The bad news is it's self-explanatory and you don't have to present it to him. So I never, I never met him. But as a reward, they let me in on EPA conferences at the White House on various issues about every other month for his entire presidency. And when he dropped out of the Paris Accord, um, thinking like June 1 of uh, whatever year that was, the White House called and thanked me that I had played a, a major role. And shortly after, he uh, selected a friend of mine, an emeritus professor of physics at Princeton University, Will Happer, to be his in-house advisor on climate change. And he spent a year at the White House in which he got to talk directly with Mr. Trump uh, every second week and found that Mr. Trump felt he had too many other issues on his plate of greater importance. And every time uh, Dr. Happer, you know, tried to talk him into making a, a bigger play for the to redo the endangerment finding of the Supreme Court or to debate the, uh, the climate change issue, he was thwarted. Uh, and he said it in this many words by uh, the deep state people that had way more power than he had ever imagined. Yeah, that's amazing. So you actually have played a role in history and you think that President Trump actually understood that the climate scare was largely a hoax. There is no question about it. But when you consider all the issues that he's dealing with, he felt that it didn't rise to the top to uh, use, you know, his what he could do, his power to deal with that issue versus other things he felt were more important. I'm not sure I disagree with that. You know, I'm not a political expert in that regard. 
Uh, Dr. Happer was very, very frustrated, and he resigned at the end of the third year of Trump's uh, term and went back to Princeton. But, uh, you know, I, I, at that time, I kind of felt maybe let's keep man-caused climate change off the front pages. You know, let's uh, leave it lie, whether right or not. But certainly we have not uh, deterred the crazy liberal progressives that use it to bludgeon society, essentially. Yeah. Well, that's all very exciting to, to have that direct input to the president of the United States. And I understand you also testified before Congress on some occasions. The last count, about three dozen. Well, some before the establishment of EPA and some uh, afterwards. Uh, actually, it was in 1968. The fellow who was in charge of water supply at the Bureau of Water Hygiene felt that we needed a strong environmental group to push for having an environmental protection agency. And he called together uh, the heads of six different professional societies that uh, dealt with water. Uh, at the time, I was head of the Association of Groundwater Science and Engineers. And he called us into Washington and, and laid out a plan uh, to lobby for an EPA. And this was in 1968. And we had many meetings over the next three years. And uh, eventually, we were able to promote the idea of an EPA. And President Nixon signed it in law in 71. And as I said, for 10 years, we did absolutely great work. I was on bunches of blue ribbon panels that helped write uh, legislation and at the end of 10 years, uh, the liberals absolutely took over. And EPA has been really since 1980, a wholly owned subsidiary of the far left. Huh. So, so it sounds that the idea that you hear in a lot of mainstream media that conservatives are not concerned about the environment. EPA was launched then by a Republican president. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it was the conservatives and the committees that I spoke to. And as I say, I think I testified before 30, three dozen different committees over a, the four-year period, actually, 68 through 71, where we launched EPA. And uh, it was absolutely the uh, conservative elements of the committees I talked to that uh, seemed to be most concerned with the reality of our natural resources and, uh, and protected them. It was not it was not the liberals, but the liberals, uh, they're not dumb. They may be evil, but they're not dumb. And they saw they could use the environment basically to take over our government by scaring people on every, a myriad of environmental issues, such as a couple dozen that I put into my book, Rational Readings on Environmental Concerns. They could scare uh, the public and large constituencies and ultimately gain really total power of EPA. And unfortunately, even Trump uh, put in a couple people as head of EPA and they didn't, uh, they didn't get the job done. And of course, now the Biden liberals have taken back over. One of the things Trump did was to undo regulations, environmental regulations that uh, hurt our economy. And he pledged when he went into office that for every new regulation they wrote, they would uh, do away with two. Well, believe it or not, for every new regulation they wrote, they did away with 20. And wow. Biden has been very busy putting all those regulations back into play. Yeah, what a shame. That's all pretty darn interesting. And people should remember that, that it was a Republican that created the EPA and conservatives that were, of course, promoting real environmental protection. Now, the BBC in England just had a series entitled Greta Thunberg, A Year to Change the World. This uh, followed Thunberg 
from Sweden, where she's, uh, you know, she's a Swede, uh, to several countries as she spent a year off school while, quote, exploring the science of global warming and challenging world leaders on the growing crisis, unquote. Now, BBC put a lot of effort into this show. They gave it primetime 9 p.m. slot on their main station, BBC One. They had a guest appearance of Sir David Attenberg. And and here's what uh, Breitbart News actually explained. They also included in the show villainous cameos by former President Trump and Russian President Putin, dramatic footage of calving glaciers and alleged endangered coral reefs, plus endless shots of Thunberg looking anguished and impassioned. So how did the show do, Jay? Well, it was a huge flop, I'm happy to say. You used the word endangered. As far as I'm concerned, the people behind uh, Greta Thunberg should be charged with child endangerment. This girl has been shown to have some uh, emotional deficiencies, and they have used her wrongly directed passion as an implement around the world. And it's very, very sad. But happily, uh, the public did not uh, buy her show at all. It completely tanked. The ratings figures showed that the program lost 55 percent of its audience from the previous time slot. It averaged 6.3 percent share of the total audience. Compare this with, say, Master Chef, which aired in the same slot the week before. MasterChef had 18.9% audience share in comparison with Thunberg's uh, 6.3. So that tells me the audience is uh, becoming a little bit more discerning and, and maybe feel, as I do, that uh, they've endangered this poor child. She's not so much a child. She's uh, a teenager now, uh, but it's very unfortunate how they've used her. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Jay, one thing that always bothers me about Thunberg is that Poor Greta says the following. I don't want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to the science. I mean, how would you respond to that, Jay? Well, uh, you know, I would actually try to use that to our benefit because there is absolutely no science to support man-caused global warming. It, it's not there at all. As, as the audience probably knows, all they hear about are mathematical models. They gin up equations that they believe simulate nature. It is so complex, it really can't be done, but that's all they have. They do not have any physical evidence to put their finger on that supports the idea that man controls the thermostat of our planet. Willie Soon, one of the world's leading climate scientists, once calculated that if all the variables that affect the temperature of our planet, our climate, were actually fed into a computer model, it would take the world's largest computer 40 years before it would reach an answer with all those variables. Models are impossible. The government has financed them billions of dollars, and none of them have been able to predict the past climate let alone uh, anything going on years in advance. And yet they sell their apocalyptic scenarios 100 years out. Yeah. Are the programs not calculating the results in a reasonable time? Is this a limitation of the computers themselves? Or is it also the science itself that's not mature enough that they can actually forecast? 
Uh, it's the latter. It is certainly not mature enough. And I've been studying it for the last 35 years. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to be uh, mature enough. So there are just so many variables. We don't, you know, it's hard. People, <laughs> the listeners will find it hard to believe. We do not understand the impact of clouds on the temperature of the earth. Now, you'd think we can see clouds, we can measure clouds, we would know their impact. We don't, let alone we don't know the impact of the fact that the core of the earth is molten, the crust of the earth is hard, and they rotate at different rates. I mean, that has to affect the climate of the earth. We don't understand relationships between the ocean and land. We don't understand the relationship of vegetation to the Earth's atmosphere. And I can go on and on with variables that smarter people than I, Tom Weissmuller, particularly of NASA and Willie Soon, have helped me develop a whole list of obvious variables that have to matter that are not included in their mathematical models because they don't have a clue what they are. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I found it, Jay, that at the beginning of the first episode in Thunberg's series, Vladimir Putin is shown criticizing Thunberg. You know, I guess the documentary producers were hoping that they'd get support for poor Greta being criticized by this fellow. But, you know, Jay, I think that what Putin said was actually justified. And I'll just read you the quote and you can tell me what, what you think. Putin said, no one has explained to Greta that the world is complex and diverse. Do you think he's right to say that? <laughs> I think he's absolutely right. And, you know, I can't think of a simpler, more accurate statement. And she is just totally unaware of it. And, of course, our own uh, Alexandria, whatever, uh, in the Congress also is unaware of it. I mean, she was a bartender. She tried out, literally auditioned to run for Congress. She won an audition because she does a terrific job on behalf of the liberals. She doesn't have a clue about any uh, scientist. I don't know what she studied uh, at a university. She went to either Boston College or Boston University. And I can assure you she never took a, a course in critical thinking of, or science of any kind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I should just tell people quickly about a new nonprofit corporation in Canada that we've just created. People can check it out. It's International Climate Science Coalition dash Canada, and it's ICSC dash Canada dot com. And we're actually focused on trying to convince political leaders to focus on adaptation in contrast to mitigation. In other words, we're trying to help them do things that really benefit society, things like burying cables underground or or building seawalls in places where it's necessary. Not crazy adaptation. You know, I mean, I think if you take adaptation to its extreme, where you move complete cities and stuff, obviously we don't want that. We want sensible adaptation, no regrets, so that independent of the cause of the climate change or the extreme weather, we're actually doing things that benefit society. So, Jay, what do you think of our new focus on adaptation? Well, I, I think it's a great idea because, I mean, the climate is always changing. And if we're concerned uh, that we're going to have more hurricanes or more uh, tornadoes for any reason, nothing having to do with, with man, more flooding, uh, then uh, absolutely we should spend our money uh, adapting to potential things that could happen rather than trying to change the climate of the earth over the, the coming decades, which is absolutely 
impossible. But I think maybe the most important thing you're you're trying to do up in Canada is is change people's focus to things that apply common sense to a potential problem instead of solutions that are impossible and absurdly costly when there are other issues that the government of Canada should uh, spend their resources on. I think you may have more problems in that regard in Canada than we have in the United States, which is very hard to believe. And in 2009, I was at the Copenhagen Climate Conference, which was really great fun because Mark Morano and I were were there and, you know, we were kind of conspiring. (laughs) And one thing I found interesting, Jay, was that the Africans were quite upset because almost the whole focus of the climate conference in Copenhagen was on trying to stop climate change. They were spending practically none of the money or very little of the time on trying to help people adapt to natural climate change today. So when I got back, Jay, I actually checked out the numbers. And it's interesting, the climate policy initiative out of San Francisco actually tracks climate finance across the world, how we spend our money and where it goes. And they found there was more than a billion U.S. dollars a day being spent across the world on climate finance. And even though the U.N. wanted it split 50-50 between adaptation, preparing for climate change, and mitigation, trying to stop it, it actually turned out that the ratio of trying to stop climate change to adaptation is about 19 to 1. So almost 20 times more money is being spent trying to stop climate change than being spent trying to help real people today. And, you know, it sort of struck me. I mean, let's say you're in northern Canada and the permafrost is melting where you happen to be because, of course, there's melting and and freezing and these are natural cycles. How do you think they would react if you went up and said, well, don't worry, we're not going to help you adapt to this, but we're reducing greenhouse gases so it won't happen to your great-grandchildren. I mean, (laughs) how are people going to react to that? Well, that is, in fact, what they are doing, whether it's said or not said. uh, That's where all that billion dollars a day is spent. And it's tragic when you think if that money could be spent on the real world problems, we could uh, end childhood blindness because they don't get rice that has uh, beta carotene in it. We could really end poverty around the world. We could end uh, hunger around the world with a billion dollars a day wouldn't be very hard to do. But instead, that billion dollars a day is spent to strike fear in the minds of the world's population so that we can end up with a more powerful UN, a one world government, and essentially socialism, if not communism. So it strikes me that, in fact, you would think left wingers seeing the poor not being helped in these very, you know, lots and lots of areas because we're trying to, quote, stop climate change, you would think that real progressives would then be against the climate scare. Well, what they call progressives are regressives, and they really don't give a darn about people or real problems of humanity. All they care about is their political motivations, uh, power. And with regard to almost every group, that promotes a lie, there's money involved. They make money at it. And of course, that's the same with all our big corporations today that buy in it. They figured out how to make money with the fear of climate change. Yeah. And in particular, you know, it's interesting if you drill down into where a lot of that money is going to in the climate policy initiative reports, what you find is that it's renewable energy. And in particular, 
wind and solar power that are taking the vast majority of that billion dollars a day. So this is surely a big money winner for corporations. Uh, it, it is indeed. And uh, basically, all the corporations care about is more money and getting more powerful. But the whole concept of wind and solar that is driven by governments, they know that wind and solar cannot supply our economy. And if they get enough wind and solar, there won't be enough energy to go around. And, that, and the government will have to ration energy. And that is their long-term goal for sure. They may be evil, but they're not stupid. Yeah. So it's all about control. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we should be wrapping up just about now. It's great speaking with you, Jay. And we look forward to a hopefully President Biden at his Earth Day Leaders Summit making some pretty crazy statements. So this is Tom signing out from the other side of the story. 